You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, the final bonus episode before the start of season three, starring Ambulance and the films of Michael Bay, featuring Will Smith, Martin Lawrence, Alcatraz, Global Killers, Deep Drillers, Pearl Harbor, Clones, Drones, Beefy Boys, Sex Toys, Benghazi, Robots, the Antichrist Ryan Reynolds, and Cholo Gatling Guns. Martin. Yes. I don't do no soft-ass shit. America. 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 of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is my beautiful baby boy, Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready for some Bayhem? I always am. So this episode has been inspired by Ambulance, the movie that is sadly getting trounced at the box office by Sonic the Hedgehog 2 (laughs) and has made me despair for humanity in general. But I got to tell you, me and Martin saw this together, and we lost our goddamn minds over this movie. Yeah, it's uh, it was it was a special. I'm glad we could see it together. A lot of times with the ones in theaters, we don't just clear our schedules, so the, it really worked out. We could see at the same time, and I had a couple of beers, and it was it was special, man. You know, and it it felt, and we'll get into it more later. It felt like a different time, you know, of seeing a movie from the '90s it had that feel of of Bay doing real stunts and just that kind of like you said real cars real cars a real simple high concept non-IP yeah it's telling a remake of a Dutch film but still a not I mean a non-IP film of just straight up like hey what if people had an ambulance and they were trying to keep a cop they shot alive in the back while being chased by cops yeah, I was going to say, I don't think the La Ambulance heads are going to come for anybody anytime soon because he wasn't faithful to the source material. No, no. But I think we also wanted to do this because we both love Michael Bay movies. And frankly, it's been interesting with this film coming out, especially in the MCU era, to watch 
film Twitter and the critical community at large kind of reevaluate and almost re-embrace Michael Bay as this auteur working in big budget filmmaking during a time when most of the stuff is producer driven. Yeah, it actually reminds me quite a bit of the hindsight is 2020 mentality towards the the prequels for Star Wars. That, Ooh, that's something else, I think. I, I know, but I, but I think there is an element, though, of when you see the Disney machine of sameness and you think of like the, the, the sequel, 7, 8, and 9, and at least has problematic, and obviously problematic you know, politically, but just as not great as the prequels are, at least they're an original thought from a person with a point of view. And I feel like that's what I got from watching Ambulance again. And I never jumped off... That's going to be that guy. But you know, I never jumped off the Bay train. I was always on it. Yeah. It was like when people like were like, oh, Nicolas Cage and Keanu are cool again. I'm like, I never fucking left, dude. Like, I've been on their side the entire time. I feel the same way about Bay is even when he's been making the Transformer films, which, you know, are bottom of his of his uh, filmography in terms of, I think, I wouldn't say quality because there's still there's a few. Well, there's a few. There's some scenes in those films are some of the best I believe he's done as an action director, as a whole film, most of them are at the bottom as entire, oh, sure. as entire yeah. stories. They're pretty like hard they're to get through. Like a, almost like an asterisk, you know, to where like you can separate Bay's entire career into two separate categories. And one is just Transformers films because like he's produced what five in mean, 10 years, five in 15 years. Is it 15? Well, so because well, the first one's, so 2007. 2017, you're right. Yeah. It was 10 years. So it's like, it, it's pretty insane just the output of it, especially when you start considering like how much work goes into those CGI heavy spectacles and you watch them and like he's combining, uh, let's say, uh, very practical Bayhem <laughs> with these huge working monstrosities that are con- like, created entirely by like animators so they're pretty amazing technical accomplishments like the rest of his filmography really is but it's like they are just their own thing even within his body of work where we're gonna discuss mostly the straight up action filmmaking that he's been doing since 1995 and bad boys yes yeah no i real quick though i it is an asterisk, but again, there are these elements that that bleed through of like, wow, that's a really impressive thing. He doesn't, what I like about him is he doesn't phone anything in. No. That even up to like Transformers 5, which he admits I shouldn't have done, he had this whole interview talking about Spielberg saying, trust me, stop at three, don't make any more. And they get, I mean, four and five are really bad movies in terms of the, the scripts are, are complete garbage. Like they, they go really around the bend, but there are some sequences in like, up to the last night, I'm like, this is one of the coolest shit he's ever done. I mean, like, really, really good, like, action filmmaking, especially when the when, when the, the Autobots aren't there. This is kind of just more human shit. Like, wow, that was really impressive. Like, some car chase stuff. and Well, it's also amazing to watch Bumblebee in relation yeah. to his Transformers movies because, uh, obviously, that he didn't direct that one. And the tone of it is totally different, where, like, you can see like the mandated uh, like producer driven stuff inside inside of Bumblebee. It's a much better looking movie than a lot of like the, let's say the MCU and stuff like that. But like 
just tonally, it's totally different. Like, it feels like it comes from another dimension where, like, Bay's Transformers movies feel like children's films made by, like, Satan. Like, they're so wildly out of their mind violent. They have this disgusting sense of humor that's carried over from his, you know, action filmmaking that's really just his like it seems like what just makes him laugh the entire time. Like what he, he doesn't care what the, he'll always call himself like an audience director, but he honestly doesn't care what the audience thinks is funny. Like it seems like he just thinks things are funny. And a lot of his humor is pretty problematic. Uh, Like right up to like dancing minstrel show uh, transformers from part two. Is that dark side of the moon? It's uh, revenge of the revenge of the fallen, revenge of the fallen. They all like, run together. Wait, Dark Side of the Moon's three. It's three, right? yeah. Yeah. See, I don't even think I've seen The Last Night. Like, I've seen Age of Extinction, but I haven't seen The Last Night. Well, again, we're going to, like you said, focus more on the the non, uh, non-robot action films of uh, <laughs> Michael A. However, I did watch um, five because I had never seen five. So I don't want it to be a completionist and say, now I've seen every Michael Bay film. Sure. Um, and... I have a few things to say about it as it relates to these other films. But something you just said was interesting is that the first Transformers is, you know, pretty heavily produced by Spielberg. And you could feel the Amblin touches really heavy. It's a boy in his car. It's E.T. So, like, that's the best one because you can feel, I think you can feel Spielberg's kind of hand. Well, and Bumblebee feels like that too. It feels like the next step getting back. To, to the original Transformers. Like, it's trying to be more of a kid's movie instead of the psychotic bayhem that he injected into it. But you just lose something entirely because the other thing I, I always think is really cool, it, you know, between the Transformers movies and his other films is that you see a ton of cast crossover. Yes. They, like, people obviously, despite his, let's say, despotic nature on mm-hmm. set... And, like, all of the legends that you've heard, everything from, like, the Armageddon Criterion commentary, which is hilarious with Ben Affleck, where he talks about what a fucking psycho uh, Bay was the entire time, to, like, you know, you hear Pat Healy talking about the set of Pearl Pearl Harbor Harbor and, like, just how he would just blow shit up, like, without even telling people and things like that. And it's, like, he's, he's a nut job. But people still like to work for him. So, which I have one or two theories about is that one, he's actually decent to work for, or two, he makes sure you get paid. I had I had a film professor in grad school, and he came out. And he was kind of a provocateur kind of professor. He liked to say things to like get everyone to just drop their jaws. And he's like, Michael Bay is the greatest filmmaker working in Hollywood, and all. And of course, it's this, it's like two thousand nine. It's like right before. Um, part two is coming out of transformers and everyone just like stops in their tracks and he's like, ha ha ha. And he's like, you know why? He's like, because he gets films done on time, mostly on budget and they all make money for the most part. And I said, and I was like, all right, this guy's kind of just, that's being stirring the pot a bit. Yeah. But I don't disagree that there's, I've watched some behind the scenes stuff and a lot of it does seem quite curated for the D the DVDs and Blu-rays and, and, he likes to play that part too of, of being the general and kind of yelling. Um, but I've read plenty of interviews like TJ Miller called him Michael Hitler Bay, you know, working with him on the fourth, um, on the fourth Transformers film. And it's interesting though, because I don't know how you make these films without like you see him on set and it's him just like, go, 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 go. Like they, I was reading an interview that he just gets on set and he is like, 
caffeinated and or other things and just, or otherwise or, or otherwise um some other energy supplements uh and he just like he runs the set like a general and it, it never stops like even the comedy scenes yeah so it has that psychotic feel everything every single scene feels unhinged i feel like in a lot of his films somewhat well yeah because the the thing that's interesting is that he is very much in the vein of James Cameron, who yes. is also known for being a nightmare person to work with on set. Um, but at the same time where Cameron is exacting and has almost like a po-faced uh, mentality when it comes to the material that he works with or writes or whatever, like he's not sitting there joking around. Like the, the, the jokes are situational. They arise. We're like, Bay goes on full fucking tangents that you can't believe came out of anywhere and also sometimes like you made this observation while we were watching his entire filmography is that you're like it'll just stop a scene dead like even like a great dramatic scene will will suddenly die because some dude will fart in the room or something yeah you know, it, it's it the, the way i've kind of described it to i think to you but other people i was talking this week just about watching these films again is you're watching shakespeare a really important scene and then you're like really annoying friend is tapping on the shoulder. He's like, Hey, I got a good joke for it. Hey, 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 wait, wait, ah, ah, I got a joke. It's like, I'm trying to pay attention to like the point. And that's why, especially the transformers films, the pacing is like, Oh my God, all over the place, you know, or you just have these scenes of like a robot who says some really inappropriate shit and just derails the scene. Like there's a scene where they're like, they're telling or has robot balls. Yeah, robot balls in part two. It's the fifth one. You have Anthony Hopkins. He gets these ridiculously good actors for these movies. And Hopkins is like kind of having a good time. And there he's telling the whole plot of like what's going on with how <laughs> the Knights of the Round Table were, were associated with, with the Autobots. Oh, that's right. That's the plot. Jesus. And Merlin's staff was an Autobot uh, gadget and a Cybertronian gadget. And... They're having this like really serious scene. And I think like Mark Wahlberg makes this joke about the female who's in the scene. And this other other Transformers gets mad and just tackles Mark Wahlberg. Like throws him out of his chair. It's like this very chaste scene in this beautiful, like uh English manner. And this robot just pile drives Mark Wahlberg across the room. And just the scene just dies like completely fucking dies and you wonder how much of that just comes from Bay's like lizard brain teenage boy like wouldn't it be funny if a robot tackled mark Wahlberg? like there's no other reason yeah. for it it just completely you don't know what it's gonna do it does feel unpredictable sometimes yeah. well let's go back to the beginning with bad yeah, boys please. in 1995 which was especially compared to what he would continue to make very low budget to the point to where they would underlit like certain scenes so that they could hide how little money they had. And they even like Michael Bay went into his own pocket to fund like a climactic stunt at the end and even used his own Porsche to be Mark, uh, Mike Lowry's car. And it's like, that's pretty crazy, especially considering it's a Simpson Bruckheimer production. This is a, a secret handshake. I mean, again, it's a bigger film, but for my brother and myself and like, uh, I was really excited to revisit this. I, I watched it, I think, early, right before COVID because the third one was coming out. But my brother, um, as I told you, last day of fifth grade, he's a senior in high school, picks me up because I got a surprise for you. We drive to fucking Greenwood, Indiana and go see Bad Boys. And it's like one of our movies, you know, it's like we 
we saw it together and you're fuck. I'm fucking 11 years old. And with my 18 year old, your brother who'd never wanted to hang out with me. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm taking you to bad boys. So this movie will always be associated with like springtime, summer entertainment, which I have also associated Bay with when he's at his best. He is like, for me, it feels like may, it feels like school's out. It just has all these, um, He's those the connections, king of the summer movie, the summer movie, right? And it just has it just has all these connotations, like positive connotations in my life. Of and it's it's funny that he, the imagery he puts in his films, is this romantic American summer world, you know, of just like the golden lights and baseball and kids in the street making, you know, like Pinewood Derby cars. It's like 1955. Never, it just stopped at 1955. Well, and it's like we watched. Uh, ambulance at the Alamo Draft House, and they had a, a Bay TV reel that they had cut together, yeah. and it included some of his music video work, which one of which was for uh, Meatloaf's. Was it? It's not. I will do anything for love. It, I think it's objects in the rearview. No, it was. It was. I'll do anything for love. It anything was that. for love. Mm-hmm. Was it that one? But it's like Where he's the monster. The entire like Americana like flying planes thing, which when I revisited Pearl Harbor, it literally is the intro to Pearl Harbor of two kids getting in the plane, playing around. And then like Robert Patrick's, the dad in the meatloaf video. It's the same plot point. And like same exact plot point. Cause then they watch the brother fly off and like crash and burn and die while like meatloaf's bloated ass is just like howling towards the moon about being like anti-vax or something. <laughs> so it's like, he's dead now. But, uh, <laughs> You watch his old videos and you realize like this is shit that he's been obsessed with ever since he was working for propaganda films. Because that's the other thing is that he came out of the uh, company that was co-founded by David Fincher and Dominic Cena and who would produce like, you know, not just Bay, but Simon West, Antoine Fuqua. Like these guys went on to basically dominate 90s action movies up through the early 2000s. It's so weird. I never knew that until you told me the other day. And you think about Dominic Cena um, and you think about Simon West and you think about um, Michael Bay and like it's hard to tell their styles apart sometimes. I mean, like you watch if, if you like took if you didn't know who Dominic Cena was and you're like, and you showed someone gone in 60 seconds, you're like that's a Michael Bay movie. Like there's just no yeah. doubt in your mind. I mean like the way it's shot and not Even just swordfish swordfish very much. So feel, and I like swordfish actually. I don't, I don't dislike it that mm-hmm. much. I just rewatched no. it. Um, the best facial hair ever for, um, Travolta. For Travolta, that little, that little like, skinny soul patch. That opening monologue of his is pretty good, but I think that movie goes downhill pretty quickly. But back to the original point, like at one point and in time during the 90s propaganda, I looked this up, so I don't know if, if it's true or quantifiable, but propaganda was apparently responsible for one third of all music videos that were produced for MTV. Like that's what their stable would just churn this shit out. And they were also working on commercials and stuff. But this kind of links them back to the original Simpson. Uh, Bruckheimer boy, which is Tony Scott, yeah. who came out of you know Scott Films and working with his brother and doing like all of those crazy commercials together and everything. Like they were the original like music video turn and commercial turned yeah. like action movie directors, and these guys are basically just carrying on that grand tradition with Simpson and Bruckheimer. Because to me, 
like Tony Scott is the granddaddy, like hovering above yes. all of these guys. That all of these guys, even Bay, has still been chasing to this day. Because I think there's an argument that Ambulance is closer to a Tony Scott movie than it is to one of his own films. That's a really good point, and um, I, I guess I thought about that a little bit when we were watching it. Um, it did feel plot-wise similar more to a Tony Scott film. It's um, unstoppable. Yeah, unstoppable. Speed. Um, yeah, just that collateral. kind of... Well, yeah, because Scott, his stuff was always more high concept, I would say, than, than Bayes has been. There's Their high concept was all not in the exact same way, though. You know? Um, well, I think you, you lose the high concept once Don Simpson dies mm. in 95, I believe, during the production of The Rock, actually. He wouldn't live to see The, the Rock completed. But he was the king of high concept big blockbuster. That's what he would do. Can I pitch this massively budgeted thing in one line? You know, everybody's trying to get out of Alcatraz, but what if we made a mo movie about a bunch of operatives trying to get in? And that was the thing where like you hook the whoever you're pitching it to in and they're like, "Yes, tell me more." And then you go on to like, "It's an SAS operative. What if it was James Bond?" but not really James Bond. And what if there's terrorists and what if they've taken the entire Bay of San Francisco, like basically hostage with the, these rockets and the, you're just off to the races at yeah. a certain point. But I think the other thing we have to talk about with Bay is, you know, we, we were discussing how there's a lot of actor crossover in his movies, but the one thing that Bay loves more than anything else is movie stars and making movie stars because I think with both the bad boys films, particularly bad boys ones, and then the rock, yeah. you have the minting of two of the, the like the biggest blockbuster stars that we would have in the nineties and going forward with Will Smith. And then you have Nicholas cage in the rock who's coming off of winning for leaving Las Vegas. And instead of going and doing like art films and shit, He's in The Rock, and then he's in Con Air, and then he's in Face Off. Like, but you could almost credit Michael Bay directly for looking at that guy and being like, "We can make something out of you. We put a fucking gun in your hand. You're a movie star." Well, that's what's interesting about Bad Boys. Rewatching it is there's really not a lot of action for Michael Bay movie. Oh yeah, like because it was lower budget, as you said, and there's a lot more stretches. Because I think it's seven million, something like that. Yeah, it, really, but really low and. There's some stretches of just improv comedy between between Will Smith and, and Martin Lawrence, which is actually a lot of it's really funny, and a really drawn out Taylioni like is she gonna get caught by the bad guys thing and this like comedy of comedy of, of of errors thing of like them switching places for no reason whatsoever, pretending that he's Mike Lowry and he, and that the, whole plot doesn't make any fucking sense. And it's like 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah. You know? I don't like bad boys. Bad boys is one of the only movies of his. I flat out think is not very good. It's hundred um, percent nostalgia for me. That's it, it. That's all that brings me through. It's tough to get through for me. Real tough hang. Um, there is some weird, interesting history about that movie though, too, because like you brought up, like there's a lot of improvisational comedy and stuff like part of that is that I was reading, I think it might have been the same interview you referenced earlier about how he said, like, Spielberg told me I should have only made three and yeah. I didn't listen to him. But there was another thing that he was talking about with uh, where Spielberg was on set of one of his movies, I believe the Transformers films, and was talking about, uh, like, basically, sc not scolding, that's probably the wrong word, but, like, watching Bay work and being like, 
they're not saying any of the, the lines from the script. Like, you're just letting them riff. And Bay's retort was, well, I have some of the funniest people in the fucking world here. Like, why wouldn't I just let them be funny? You know, like it, like they shouldn't just stick to what this, these words on paper. And like, that's basically what got bad boys into the can because allegedly the screenplay was horrible. It was called bulletproof hearts, I believe, and was originally supposed to star John Lovitz and Dana Carvey (laughs) until, and like they almost had them locked because the legend goes that Don Simpson invited Carvey and, and Lovitz out to a wild weekend in Las Vegas. And Dana Carvey was so horrified by the level of uh, drug consumption and, and uh, debauchery and just full on debauchery on Simpsons part, which he's legendary for and ended up killing him. But like that, he, that he basically left and was like, no, I'll never work with that man fucking ever. He's the, like an utter nightmare person. So they ended up getting Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, which is odd. Did you think about that? Like, does that mean Will Smith and Martin Lawrence were like, yeah, this Don Simpson guy, I'm real into it. Like, I could see Martin Lawrence being into it, but now, like, with Will Smith, uh, well, his image has changed lately, let's say. But, like, back then, he's wholesome, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And even Michael Bay talks about how, like, you know, the whole sequence towards the end where his, like, his shirt's unbuttoned and he's, like... He's running. got the muscles out and he's running. He had to talk Will Smith into unbuttoning his shirt because Will Smith didn't want to show skin at all. And and basically, Michael Bay was like, if you unbutton your shirt, you will become a movie star. Please do it for me. I swear to God that will happen. He wanted... You know, we were talking about, again, like the lack of... The, the lack of action in this movie, right? And even with that, though... Everyone always looks good and cool as fuck. Oh, yeah. Like, there's... What I like about Bay is... You watch some films, especially when they have a pretty heavy like second unit, diff, like, difference in the second unit and, like, the, the main unit. And Bay's there for everything. And so you feel that... That's Bay, his camera it's stuff. His, it's his, yeah. Right. It's, so he is... His film is Bay from the smallest, like, dumb 12-year-old joke to the biggest fucking bus crash in a, in a movie or, you know, in the rock shooting a fucking, you know, train car up into the air, he's always there for it. And so like this, even though bad boys is, I agree, like not high on my list, it's one of his coolest looking and you can see why this guy got more work. I mean, it just looks so fucking cool. I mean, the way he shoots Miami, just that, that sepia tone, which became his, it's only ever been bested by one of his other movies, pain and game. Yeah, absolutely. But, the other thing that I really like about Michael Bay, and it, it's kind of what we'll talk about as we get into The Rock, is that he gets good performances out of people, even if it seems like they're working against the material the entire time, which to me is Nicolas Cage in The Rock. I don't feel like Nicolas Cage 100% belongs in the movie because he's still dialing it up and and kind of really leaning into a bunch of his idiosyncrasies the entire time. But Bay lets it roll and really kind of gets out of him what he needs and makes Stanley Goodspeed like the hero of that movie. It's it's surprising. Um, I rewatched that last night. It's probably I've seen it so many fucking times. Probably the one I've watched the most of Bay is The Rock. Um, should we just get into the rock now? Yeah. Yeah. So I, it's interesting because he is 
like he is so out of place, but again, like Bay makes it work because he is supposed to be this guy who's not meant to be on the mission. And for a good, a good portion of the film, like he's not an action star. Like he's kind of following behind Sean Connery. The action is driven by the Navy SEALs, by by well, Mason. He well, kind of hangs even back. that like uh, entire intro where he and his assistant are basically caught in that tube. Yeah, where they get the care package and the baby starts the sarin spitting gas out and the sarin gas and melting their suits. Like that sets up pretty well, like who this guy is. Like that he is not good under pressure. You know, well he is good under pressure because they end up living. But it's like he is not built for combat. Let's say he's the guy who might defuse the bomb if he gets lucky, but like you're not putting him into a war zone anytime soon. Yeah. It's hard to, it, it's hard to have any kind of context. Cause it's hard to remember a time when I didn't have Nicholas cage as an action star. You know, it, it, this, like you said that this was like the first there and he does kind of stick out like a sore thumb, especially from the other, like, people like like Michael Bean, who I think fits very well into this militaristic world that bringing it back to Cameron, to Cameron as well. Right. That he's creating and William Forsyth, definitely a man like man loves these bureaucrats, you know, all, all the people he has who come back time and time again to play vice presidents and chiefs of staff and all these like older <laughs> old white dudes, you know, sitting in, uh, and this is an old white dude hall of fame movie because you have John Spencer, you have Philip Baker hall showing up. Yep. You have fucking, I mean, Connery himself is basically just doing what if James Bond was in prison for the last 30 years. Like there's so much Ed Harris is just doing his chiseled jaw. Like Ed Harris is treating the rock. Like it's, fucking Shakespeare. Like he brings it to every scene. You're like, dude, you don't have to go that hard, but he goes like Jack Nicholson and a few good men in every fucking scene. He, Ed Harris is my favorite part of this movie. He is. And I, I love Ed Harris and a lot of stuff. I rewatched, um, Knight Riders a few years ago, the Romero film. And it's the same thing there. It's like, dude, you're in Knight Riders. And he is like, they're hundred percent bringing it. And like, it's, it's the, he's, he's pontificating and he's speaking in this very, like, he's almost like on, he's on stage. And in this one, this is probably the best out of all the movies, most believable character interactions for as heightened as it is. I think the entire subplot of what's happening within the terrorists and how they fall apart is some of the best acting stuff that, base ever directed. I think partly having Ed Harris and David Morse as your kind of like two linchpins of holding the morality together and like, okay, well, this is interesting. They don't really want to kill anybody. But then you have Tony Todd and the other guys who are just kind of maniacs. They just are mercenaries. Um, but I think he gets some really amazing stuff out of that set uh, of performers. Well, even his character intro is pretty amazing in that you get to see him. He goes to his wife's grave, gives her his Congressional Medal of Honor, like puts it on her tombstone. And it's like, I got to go do something I couldn't do while you were alive. Like it sets up his moral code like so quickly. Now, here's the thing is that I've I've listened to a lot of people talk about how Bay is bad at characters 
and like building them. And I think that that's kind of bullshit. Like yeah. he, to me has always come from like the same Tony Scott, Walter Hill school of like show. Don't tell. Like, I don't, he's not going to have a, a character give you like a monologue about like their pain or anything. In fact, he'll probably make fun of them if they're in therapy the entire time <laughs> that he does in a lot of his movies. But it's like for him, it's just showing like what happens. Like, Ed Harris putting the, you know, the, the medal of honor on his wife's grave or like in the middle of the Benghazi siege, um, you have James badge Dale, like just go wipe his face off, look in the mirror and then touch the picture of like his kid who's back at home and then go back out and fight like to him. That's, that's the character building you get. And some people are like, Oh, he only makes these thin sketches of these dudes. But to me, like it's real powerful because he believes in creating an almost like elemental sense of like melodrama and character that's it conveys all the emotion that you that you need to understand these situations well yeah it's pared down like a western yeah i mean it's morality tales and it's i mean you think about up to ambulance where it's a very thing of like loyalty between brothers and um people who are on both sides of the, uh, the law but like they're not really your side's really evil you know the gray area um between law and order and so he I think he's really good. And like you said something with the melodrama that like when he, when he does that, right. I mean, it Armageddon is, is one of the ultimates of just really good melodrama, like really like downright circy in at certain points. Absolutely. Um, and I think he's, I think all the stuff too, with, um, with John Mason, with, uh, Sean Connery and like his daughter, Claire Forlani is actually quite touching, you know, and that you had this idea of like the line where he says, you know, part of the only, only proof that I even exist. And like, it's well delivered. And, and then the following moment of Nicholas Cage coming around and not embarrassing in front of his daughter and saying, Hey, we've been looking for you. We got to get back on mission. It's like, there's all these really great beats, especially in the rock. I think that, that he lands as a director and also the actors that what he gets, right. I always love the little moment between Cage and William Forsythe at the end of The Rock. Yes. After, you know, Connery's gone. Cage has basically lied to all the other operatives saying that, like, he was blown up in the explosion at the end. And then Forsythe goes, body's vaporized, huh? Yeah. All right. And then, like, Spencer comes. No, that's when Spencer well, comes. Well, no, then yeah. Spencer comes up and is like, bodies can vaporize. He's like, Oh yeah, like totally. But you just see that little smirk the first time between cage and, and William Forsyth. And like, he gets it because he builds in this idea that like, this is the beginning of one of his greatest fascinations, which is, uh, our veterans being screwed over by the government. Mm. Like Michael Bay has always been painted. And I think wrongfully so as being this almost like alt right libertarian jingoist the entire time. Like he makes almost borderline propaganda movies, which if you look for, it's all in there. But to me, he's so deeply cynical about our own government and how we specifically treat soldiers because I mean, he has it in multiple movies. It starts in the rock with how, uh, the the uh, entire mission is about basically uh, like emptying a black ops fund so that it can actually pay you know the families of soldiers who were left behind in battle and killed like in black ops and stuff and were basically disavowed by their government and like ambulance is about a a veteran who comes home and can't uh, get health care for his ailing wife so he decides to basically 
join up in a bank robbery. And then 13 hours, which we were talking about uh, off mic before we started, is to me, a lot of people have, have gone out on a limb to try and talk about 13 hours and how it's like an anti-Hillary propaganda movie, especially how it was released at the time. And some people even at the time were like, trying to credit it with being like a piece of propaganda that helped Donald Trump win. And you're like, yeah, I guess like it was probably poor timing to release that movie at that point. But Bay also doesn't make that decision. Paramount does. But to me, it's almost more about we shouldn't screw these guys over. It's not any more political, like political than that, just because he likes masculine brawny soldiers and like he likes people who defend their country and he's more into the iconography of it more than the politics of it yeah because he's we were texting earlier and he definitely is a holdover from some of the 80s politics of the of this the films and not in terms of like purposeful politics but they're just there you know so you think about even a film like cobra you called him reactionary yeah which and i think he is where you have um you know, you have Stallone and Cobra, where the the classic dichotomy of like the loose cannon versus the bureaucracy. And if, if you just let Cobra off the leash, all these criminals would be dead and we'd be good to go, right? If you just didn't stand in the way. And I'll, we'll get to this more with 13 hours, but that's definitely a component of that classic kind of the, 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 the paper pushers don't get what a soldier needs to do to get the job done. And again, I don't, I agree. I don't think he comes from a very political bent. It's also, it kind of goes together with his humor, where it's just like, this is just what I like. Like, it really is like your kind of sometimes offensive uncle where it's like, he's not racist. He's really not that he might be a little sexist, but you're like, that's just my uncle. He's not there to like, <laughs> he's not, he's not even, he doesn't even mean anything by it. Do you know, I, do you know what I mean? I actually wrote that in, <laughs> in the piece uh, that I put up on our site to today about, it's called a let blockbusters be disreputable again. But I compared Bay to being the disreputable cousin who comes around at Thanksgiving and, and tells you like extols the virtues of, of sleeping with as many strippers as you can. Like he's almost like Eric Cartman. If Eric Cartman were a big blockbuster director, well, like John Favreau is the one who puts you on his knee. He's the good uncle. He's like with great power comes great responsibility. And you're like, yeah, fuck you. I want to go hang out with uncle Mike, man. Like I think he's doing blow in the back bathroom right now have you noticed he hasn't eaten any of his turkey well it's really funny you bring up cartman because you know there's a, a long historical um not enmity but distaste uh dislike for bay by by um trey parker and matt stone like the original idea for team America was to remake Armageddon with puppets. That was like the whole pitch. Yeah. They said, this movie's so fucking stupid. We can make this with puppets and it'd be better. And of course, like team America is a Michael Bay movie that every bit, I mean like the whole song, cause Pearl Harbor sucks and I miss you, which is one of the funniest like songs ever written. Well, I love, I love, I love South park and I love Bay, but I think you're really right. It's that kind of, that the way they use Cartman to be this like straw man for anything of just like the bullshit of masculinity uh, and just like not even right wing masculinity, just dudes who are like, I don't get the big deal. Like, I feel like it's like Bay's the guy who'd say, I don't see what the big deal is. Yeah. You know, like at the same time as we praise Michael Bay for all this shit, like there's no way that he doesn't listen to Joe Rogan. Oh, <laughs> well, and, and let's, let's set something straight here too. Like, I don't want to be a Bay apologist either, where there is some stuff in these movies that is like straight up I, uh, yeah. offensive when they came out and offensive now. It's not hindsight. Well, the, 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 to, 
to kind of bounce off of what you're saying, the one thing that I, I did think, because I watched 13 hours today, it was the last thing I had to watch before we recorded. And, and the thing that I thought kind of to go along with your idea of like lizard brain, like 13 year old boy that just kind of lives inside of his head and how everything is just like funny and awesome. The, the bad byproduct of that is that Benghazi and Pearl Harbor should not be awesome. Like the very nope. concept of like, what if I made Pearl Harbor look fucking sweet, dude? It's like, Mike, I need you to calm down. No more cocaine tonight. Please go sit in the corner and like think about your actions. Benghazi sort of the same way to where you're like, this is an amazing action movie, but should it be? A hundred percent agrees. We were, I was texting this last week. I said, this guy picks subject matter that needs like a scalpel and he comes in a fucking sledgehammer. Like it's his only tool. He just, he doesn't come in. You think about like the complexity of zero dark 30. Right. Which in the end, it was still the end result was a heroic moment in American history, but it does not paint over how we got there and the torture and the, and the, the blood that was on our hands. This film is like, well, and she also doesn't shoot it like fucking point break. Michael Bay <laughs> shoots it, shoots Benghazi like point break. Oh, he does. Yeah. Cause what's, what's so is Bigelow has always has been good. Like she can tow that line because at the same time that end incursion zero to 30 is one of the best action scenes ever made. Oh, it's amazing. Like, it's perfect. But again, she's not having them Rambo style, you know, but I, I watched this with my brother 13 hours and as we've, you've all heard of this, we're both kind of into gun porn and we both like, are like, like watching this stuff and we had not seen it. We rented it. He said, dude, let's watch 13 hours. I'm like, we watched it together. We both like Bay. I'm like, do it. And we were just laughing and having a great time. The whole, like, it's a scene where I gets cut in half by a 50 cal. And we're like, I should it's not, incredible. I should not be like hooting and hollering at this very complex thing that if you want to talk about a thing that got, you know, Michael Bay, uh, Michael Bay Donald Trump elected was not the movie, but like Benghazi fucked Hillary the way it was yeah. handled. And here's this movie is like, no, fuck all that shit. I think you're right. I don't think he cares about that. I think it's like, I'm going to make these guys look so fucking cool. John Krasinski, like, like ripped looking like a badass, like James badge Dale with his badge Daleness, you know, <laughs> coming in and just Pablo Schreiber, Pablo Schreiber. Though. I mean, they're all great. Another the other guy from the, from the office who I forget his name. The, yeah, I can't remember his name either, but he's the one who dated Pam before Jim. Yes. Which I wonder if there was any conflict over that on set. <laughs> I think they're friends in real life. I but, know. but yeah, I just I don't think that he there's some stuff in these films, like we'll get to this with 13 hours, but there's a moment where I realized that I was just on base wavelength. If you watch enough of his films in a row, you enter his headspace and you start to see the world. In a, in a Michael Bay way. And you can almost predict his films. Not in terms of plot points, but in terms of jokes. Oh, yeah. So we're watching this scene, and it's early on, and they're going to rob this this bank. And they, they're riding in an elevator, and the, the doors are closed, and they're all armed up with their guns. You're talking about ambulance now. Ambulance, yeah. And all of a sudden, this um, this little walker cane with like plastic knobs at the bottom blocks it. I go... You don't see who it is. I go, that is going to be a small Asian woman. And I predicted it. And she walks in and she was exactly how I imagined her in my mind. And I was like, he can't help himself. I said, I, I knew exactly what he was going to do in that moment. You know, I just this weird thing of like, I've never had that happen with too many films where I'm like, I've guessed plot points, but not like joke aside. So I'm like, this is the perfect time for him to do this. And he did. Yeah. I saw Walter Chaw on film Twitter 
like losing his mind. He he took a break from turning his suicide notes into full fledged reviews and decided to get offended by the quote unquote dragon lady in ambulance. And somebody was like, "Dude, she's on screen for like thirty seconds. Really, you're that mad about this? Like, tone it down a notch." But also, like, you walk into a Michael Bay kind of like movie, like you're saying, and you know the fucking things that he thinks are funny. Fat black people screaming. Yes. Little Asian women. He has a hard disdain for any kind of like, let's say chubbier people. Yep. Um, there's an entire bit in fucking pain and gain where Tony Shalhoub is just destroying two Shalotsky workers for having pimples and one being fat. But like, this is again, just who he is. He's Eric fucking Cartman. Like he thinks like, there's no way that Michael Bay has not bun a, done like a, a Ching Chong, like dragon lady voice on set and be like, Oh, so funny. Ha ha ha. And you're like, Mike, you shouldn't do that. Like that's bad, you know? But that's again, it's not apologizing for what he does. But at the same time, it's just understanding that that's who this fucking guy is. I don't think it's mean spirited. I think he's just a douche. I think that's it, you know, and it's I I find it like just kind of fascinating my relationship, our relationship with Michael Bay, because there are other filmmakers out there who I think make offensive films that are on the right side of politics The you know, not right, correct side, but, you know, the right, you know, extreme right that I find really distasteful and I'm just like, fuck this shit. I don't want anything to do with this, but Bay name names. Um, well stuff from a certain company here in the state. Um, that doesn't exist anymore. That doesn't exist anymore. You're talking about S Craig Zoller. Yeah. Um, oh, he definitely has some weird political leanings. I, I definitely know that one. Um, but again, I, I, or sometimes honestly a film that is really offensive, but I really kind of like is last blood. Rainbow Last Blood. Oh God! Like, yeah. but that well, one yeah, is about as right wing as you. We could just talk about Stallone through the years and about how all of his movies are are the uh, epitome of American pop jingoism. Like from Rambo two on, like that molded an entire way that people saw the action hero as this like Reagan era chiseled hard oiled, man, like hard man who just goes in, kills all the brown people, and liberates whatever good is left there. Like that's that's what Stallone did. Well, we talked about this, you know, we we're. I watched Rambo First Blood Part 2 like twice in one weekend because um, when you put it on, you have to finish it. But the whole thing of like, you know, Cameron said, you know, the action scenes remind the politics were Stallone's yeah. when they wrote that together. And so that's a guy who makes me feel uncomfortable sometimes. Like you watch Rambo, the fourth one from 08, or you watch, you know, you watch Last Blood and it's like, okay, this is a pretty crazy action, but also like, I feel a little bit dirty after. Well, I, I feel like a little covered. Stallone has in not so co- like coded language basically said that Ryan Coogler didn't make black, like Creed 2 because the first one, it seemed like it was too black for him. Like, you know, it's not great. That's yeah. Well, he and he's a straight up Trump supporter. Like he's been, yeah. they're, they're friends, and like he's interviewed on like the Seven Hundred Club and like right wing Christian network shit. So, but that's a different conversation. But it is still interesting to compare him to to Bay. to Bay. You know where who's just a dick. He just yeah, he's an asshole. You know, and you're like okay. I don't think there's any political leaning to it. I think he's just a jerk off. Yeah, and it's like let's time. let's call it what it is, right? And it's like this is just like you say, your cousin or your uncle. But I do think, to get us back on track, one of the things that did (laughs) temper his jerk-off tendencies a little bit um, is that 
he was working with Simpson and Bruckheimer during the time where they would bring in every fucking awesome working screenwriter to tinker with their scripts after the fact, because you have like Aaron Sorkin worked on the rock. Like he basically writes the entire shower sequence, according to uh, legend, which is the best scene in the whole fucking movie. One of the best things Bay's ever done. Yeah. That's what I mean. He turns, he turns guys shooting at each other with machine guns into a few good men for like three minutes. And then you have, you know, Quentin Tarantino coming on and doing some doctoring on Crimson Tide, which is not his movie, but he's working with Simpson Bruckheimer again and now full on writing a movie for Tony Scott during that period. And then you also have J.J. Uh, Abrams having a credit because a lot of these this work was done uncredited. But like J.J. Abrams was one of like what? Six writers on Armageddon? There's the, a lot. The original story and screenplay, it's he, it's Jonathan Hensley. Yeah. And and him. It's just and the two of them. Did Gilroy work on it too? I think he might have been on a rewrite. Okay. But I think they get original like story credit was was JJ and um yeah. and Hensley. So like they're actually handpicking great scripts here only for Michael Bay to come in and just thunder around and be like, I'm gonna do whatever I want. But like I will maintain to this day, we ha- we do have to do our Bay top fives for this episode, and I still am not one hundred percent sure if I'm going to put this at number one, but it's near number one for me. Is that Armageddon is almost like the key to understanding the rest of Michael Bay's films because I feel like this is when fully formed Bayhem comes out because even The Rock is still more controlled, precise. Like, even though it feels like a, a theme park attraction run by, an, like, a mutant maniac the entire time, right down to, like, it becoming Indiana Jones and, and the I Temple of Doom, shit. like, underneath Alcatraz because there's mining carts there or something. Why? Who knows? But, like, here with Armageddon, you get everything. And rewatching this, I gotta be honest, cried all over again. This movie works on me in a way that, like, few big budget entertainments ever have like I you can put it on right now and I'll watch it front to back and be like love it cried amazing it's really um it's a good point they just made though about um it it becoming a movie where Bay really kind of comes into his own and and you're like and the just the look alone is is so much more Bay than what had come before because like the rock there's a couple segments that they don't even look that much like a Bay film. Like they look a little bit more traditional, I would say in terms of like color and, and, and the way they're shot more like dialogue scenes. Um, the rock he's edging towards it more, especially with the command center scenes. But here he takes that to the next level with like the camera whipping around Billy Bob as he's, he's giving uh, directions to, to the space shuttles. Um, the way that, like really extended like character intro for Harry and his crew. Yeah. And like when they do the whole like rounding up the team sequence, which is one of the greatest things that Bay's ever put, you know, to celluloid. But yeah, it's just you you can watch, you can track his evolution. And here it just feels like he's just all the pieces are there and he had them before, but here he's just doing it 100% his way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way, it's funny you bring again Tony Scott. Like, there's this. He's definitely doing a lot. What Tony Scott was doing. That the further Tony Scott went into like the early 2000s, he went down that whole like multiple types of film stock and the super saturation using video and the and the the crazy amount of grain. You watch like you know Domino is the ultimate in my mind of how far 
he went with that. Um, but well, they're an unstoppable for me too, because like it almost becomes stripped down to abstraction at certain points. Right. You're like, I'm not sure what, and, but, but Bay touches on that in certain stuff. Like even in Pearl Harbor, where he starts playing with film stock. There's some stuff where like, like light bleed in, like when they're in the hospital scene after, yeah, after, the, after the attack. So he, he's playful there, but I think, um, Armageddon is also the birth of the asides that he likes, the comedic asides. Like there's, a, there's a lot of that, especially with Buscemi, um, of the continuous joke of like, every time he's on screen, he's like making a joke about having sex with underage girls. Like it's just this running thing that they can't help themselves. And every time he showed grace, how to put her tampon in. Yeah. And then he, when he shows up and they're like, um, he's like, a lot of us were there. And then other scene, like the cops come, he's like, I, I swear she was 18. He does like three fucking times. It's like, all right, dude. Like he literally takes a loan out from a loan shark to buy a Russian stripper. I believe mm-hmm. at one point. Yeah, not a good person, but yeah, it, there's a lot more of that all stuff. Of Bay's stuff like coming to a head. But also, I think all of his good stuff's coming to a head too. Really co- coming to a simmer. Let's say like a lot of the uh, imagery that he uses. Like, because to me. He's one of the great image makers in all of cinema. Like one of my favorites comes from this movie is at the end after Harry, Harry gives himself over you know, the asteroid explodes. You get the global cheer, you know, that we're all going to save and everything. All of a sudden he cuts to another one of his great Americana shots of boys running with like mini toy uh, space shuttles in front of a mural of John F. Kennedy in the middle of like, it seems like Kansas, yeah. you know, but it's, it's such like a striking yeah. Circean image that that's all you need. You don't need dialogue there. You just need the music and you need these kids. And it's just, he gets how like a single uh, moment can tell you everything about what you need to know with this movie. Yeah. It's interesting because he does the, it's how you can also critique him because he's a similar mentality towards other cultures. You know, the, just the, the cutaways of stuff. It's like, sure. It's really like extreme versions, you know, uh, see, here's my thing. Uh, to me, this is the closest that our generation ever got to an Irwin Allen movie Yeah, outside of the, the Roland Emmerich stuff, which is very much the Irwin Allen of his day. But this is Bay's take on like an Irwin Allen movie. And like, He's, again, conveying to you, like, what these different cultures mean on a, on an iconography level. Yeah. I don't think it's racist. No. I think it's just, like, how, how do I sell, you know, Hindis celebrating that the earth isn't going to explode to a multiplex in New Mexico or in, in oh, Iowa? Or to pick your, you know, red state, middle America, true-blooded kind of movie viewer like they're gonna get that and also it starts with some of his craziest ideas it's like what if i blew up paris they're really gonna get that in texas right well that's that is a funny point because i was thinking again of team america the whole opening and they was destroying paris like they're here to save the day but there's destroying shit so whole thing um i was like taking notes of every film has some kind of destruction, especially the Transformers films, of like a famous international landmark. And so at the end of part five last night, they're like, the Cybertron, the planet has come right outside of Earth. 
and it's dragging these giant tendrils like across the planet and scraping it clean. And it cuts, and there's the one of the pyramids goes, "Oh, that pyramid's going down!" And it just like <laughs> it's hits going. it, and it just destroys it. I'm like, he couldn't help himself. He just had to like. Now I do want to introduce one question to you that we might have to apply to the rest of these movies going forward. Who wins the Ed Harris award in this movie? I know my pick, but I want to see yours. Like who's the guy who comes in and just gives this fucking performance that this movie doesn't deserve. One of my favorites is Will Patton. No, he's great. He's not my pick, but he's great. He's not as big as Ed Harris, but I always, I think Will Patton's that great guy who's made a 40 year career out of just being, the steady American. He can play the bad one or the good one. He could be your, like your best neighbor or brother, or also like your evil, you know, evil sheriff. He does it on that new Josh Brolin show. That's coming to uh, Amazon in a couple days, I believe. Yeah. Called, uh, outer range, outer range where he's the, the bad rancher who's against him. Josh Brolin. And he's kind of in the throes of possible dementia, but like really going at him in like a, a almost like Trumpian style. Like it's, it's, Pretty interesting performance, but as soon as he showed up in it, kind of like what you said, I just looked at him, I was like, and I smiled because I'm like, oh, Will Patton, I know I'm at least going to get one good thing here because he's just so reliable. He's never, like that movie Spitfire Girl from way back when, like he's really great as the villain in that. Um, so I would say Will Patton's one of my favorite parts, but not that Harris. Um, I think Billy Bob yeah, really. That's it. You, you're, you just nailed it. Like he... And this was an era. This is when Billy Bob got skinny. Like right around when he got skinny. Is this when he's with Angelina too? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think Be- so. Because this is after Sling Blade. Like Billy Bob started to show up in like everything. Because suddenly Billy Bob took over Hollywood. But man, the stuff between Billy Bob and Bruce Willis and Liv Tyler and Liv Tyler. Like we like he's so fucking good in this. And again, he gives a performance that like this movie doesn't deserve when he screams at Keith David this is one fucking order that you shouldn't follow and you fucking know it. And like just storms off. And you're like, there we go. Like, it's just, he, he goes for the dunk every time in this movie and he gets the emotional response that he really needs to that moment where, uh, they return and you know, AJ gives him the patch. Oh, I love that. And it's like, you know, Harry said that you would want this. It just, it, it makes me choked up every time I watch this movie. I just think this movie works in so many ways that again, it should not. And has roundly been celebrated or decried, I guess I should say, as the death of cinema when it first came out. Like Roger Ebert infamously wrote that horrible one star review for this where he opened that this movie is an assault on the eyes, the senses, good taste, and even the desire to be entertained. It's the first feature-length TV ad. It has its own highlight reel. I think his, the closing line of his opening paragraph is something like, whatever whatever they're charging to get in, it it costs more to get out. Like, and it's, it like, he hated this fucking movie. And, like, I saw this movie probably six times in the theaters. Like I loved it so much. And I was like 15, 16 years old or whatever. And it just, it, it hit all the buttons that I wanted to. And honestly, like you just don't get this type of movie today anymore. It's just a star studded disaster epic. That's like in a weird way, especially for Bay is wildly optimistic. I had a friend who I worked with at Vulcan for a lot of years who labeled this uh, Bay's the Abyss. And I seriously think that like the parallels between the two are 
are pretty close, especially the end when you have Harry saying goodbye to Grace. And going on that solo mission that yeah. there's no return from. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting for you know Ebert to say that and now were, you know, Scorsese and these filmmakers are decrying the death of cinema with, with the MCU and, and with streaming as well, but particularly the MCU. While film Twitter's re-embracing Bay as like, at least we're getting some kind of auteurist entertainment. You're like, whoa, 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 damn, where were you this whole time, brother? Seriously, the lines have been redrawn, you know, that like, and I don't think, I'm glad that he's being celebrated, glad that he's getting like credit where credit is due because you also think about, you know, I don't want to go too far with this this analogy, but the way that Kahedu Cinema like rediscovered someone like Hitchcock, because I don't think he's that level of filmmaker, but Hitchcock was just considered an entertainer. Like that was it. Like for the longest time. Until they were like, no, this guy is they're the ones who broke it down and made him the lauded auteur that he is today. Well, and there's this big interview that's in EW now with Bay uh from Joshua uh Rothkampf, mm. who he Bay cites the the French critics and saying like that they he's been embraced in Europe and stuff because they actually get that he's after this idea of the American dream and kind of how it's been perverted and twisted and stuff and like he's a guy who's now been reclaimed by some of the people who fucking hated him the entire time so he's pretty self-aware while also in the same breath going i've always adhered to what you know bruckheimer told me back in the day is don't read any critics don't read good don't read bad you just make your movies for audiences and like you kind of get that from him too i mean regardless you were saying earlier about you know his sense of humor sometimes because i don't care if the audience finds it funny i find it funny when it comes to action 99% of the time, he's on the money. I mean, he really, really is ahead of the curve. And with the stuff he does in Ambulance, which we'll get to, woo, I mean, in terms of what he does with some camera stuff and oh, yeah. like the future of action cinema, honestly, some of the shit that he does, I hope it is, and not just shitty CG. Well, and he does do some of that in his next movie, which is also, to me, his biggest, one of his biggest failures, which is Pearl Harbor, because he has that great POV bomb shot that he would uh, replicate in 13 yep. hours later. His movies start talking to one another. Also, thing that's shocking about Pearl Harbor to me, you want to talk about a guy who's in love with movie stars. I can't figure out why Ben Affleck worked with him again because he obviously didn't have a great time while making Armageddon. Anybody who listens to the Armageddon commentary realizes that Bay thought or that uh, Affleck thought Michael Bay was kind of a dope the entire time who would just yell at him while he was on set. You know, I think I know why that he did it again. Um, Me too. I think uh, it's the same reason Bay did. But I, I think it's a couple of things. Well, also, at this point, Affleck was like, he was hit or miss. Like, he was doing big shit. And a year before, he had Phantoms. And Reindeer Games. And, so he's making, also working with a monster, Frankenheimer. <laughs> he could have screamed at a oh, guy yeah. who's a monster on set. And I think that he saw... Like, Pearl Harbor could have been like his George Clooney movie. Like if it had hit, this could have been the movie that put him into the stratosphere. And Ben Affleck still is one of the biggest movie stars in the world to this day. But like he never quite hit the level I think he could have. Um, if this movie had hit, I think it would be a different story. If he had the if he had the experience that Will Smith had on Bad Boys, right? Yeah, of being elevated. 
Um, well, I think that's what a lot of actors, especially young, white, male Hollywood actors, looked at Michael Bay for, is that they saw what he did with Will Smith and Martin Lawrence, which even Bay has pointed out. He'd been like, you know, the studio didn't want to make the movie with two black guys. And I was like, no, these guys, I think they could be great, blah, blah, blah. Like, he didn't actively fight for them because he didn't have that kind of leverage. But he saw in them, he was like, Will Smith, you unbutton his shirt and have him run a little bit. All of a sudden, he's an Independence Day. You know, the same goes for like looking at uh, Nick Cage is all of a sudden Nick Cage is dominating big budget action cinema and churning out these massive blockbusters like The Rock, Con Air, Face Off. All of those movies were massive hits. Yeah. So it's not like Bay had a bad track record. I think the biggest mistake that he makes with Pearl Harbor. And I think Affleck is doing the same thing to one degree or another is I think this is their first vie for respectability. Mm. I think he thought he was making an Oscar movie, but he was making Pearl Harbor. And again, I don't think that Bay should have ever gone that route. I don't think he should ever try to be respectable. I think one of the things that makes his movies even unique now, and it's what I wrote about today for the site is the fact that they were disreputable is that he just embraced what he wanted to do and being an entertainer, being a big showman who had a dirty mouth and wanted to blow shit up. Like we don't want you to apply those sensibilities to fucking Pearl Harbor. Like let like Paul Greengrass or something, make that movie. Like you just do you bro. But he had to do it and fail because if he didn't, I don't think we would have ever gotten bad boys too, which is one of the greatest fuck yous in cinematic history of all time. And one of the most unique movies I've ever seen in the movie theater. Real quick about Pearl Harbor. You know, I, it's my first time seeing it. I avoided this. Oh no shit. I avoided it when it came out. Um, because I hated Ben Affleck at that point where I was like, I don't like this fucking guy. I didn't even, I liked Armageddon, but he annoyed me in Armageddon. So I don't like this guy. Mm. And I like, I actually like him quite a bit now, but I just didn't want him around deep water forever. And I also, the way they kind of marketed it was like, it's another tight Titanic kind of thing of a love story. Oh, that's 100%. You know, doing, a yeah. love story mixed in with, you know, a true life tragedy. And I'll totally agree with you though. It's, it's probably the most chaste film he's ever made because he is also playing with this other time period of the cuteness. And this, like there's a scene where it's, the first time you meet Kate back in sale and she's telling a story to all her friends about when the, she, when she met Ben Affleck and the, the shots and the, the shopping, it is one of the worst things he's ever made. I it's mean, horrible. like it's like 20 minutes. It's like literally 20 minutes of her, like talking to these girls and they're all like, like Greece style. Tell me more. Tell me more. It's literally like, Oh, a, I didn't even think about like Greece. A, That's totally what they're doing. It's a musical thing. And the guys are telling their stories about, Oh, we met and it's so vapid and stupid and it doesn't have any of that kind of, the disreputability you're talking about of if that were a modern day, like it would be like Megan Fox telling dick jokes, like a hundred percent. Like that's what that scene would be. And then it, it's all that kind of like almost Boz Lerman, um, Australia level of cheese that goes on for a big portion of the movie. But the one thing I'll give this movie is the action scenes are some of the best stuff he has ever done. I mean, yeah, they're pretty cool. It's, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Stuff. I'm not as on board with them as you are. Like I, I really like the, the scale and scope of the entire thing, but like you take that and put it against the Cuba invasion at the end of bad boys three and everybody can suck my dick. No, you're, you're right. But I think some of the, the aviation stuff he pulls off it's just it like the mixture sure. of CG and practical. Cause he's doing a real Howard Hughes thing with that. 
Well, and yeah, Howard Hughes, one of my favorite movies is Only Angels Have Wings, and it has that kind of flyboy vibe of like, yeah. you don't get what it is to be a pilot. Super cheesy, but also like, I kind of get into it. Um, also, you get in Randall Wallace. He's, he's, he's doing the math. He's like, okay, we got the guy who fucking wrote Braveheart. We're going to do that. Cameron won for Titanic. That's my, my idol. Yes. You know, how do we put the two things together and, and win again? Because... Randall Wallace also did. We were soldiers. We were soldiers because that was it. There was a time where he was really going after that Oscar again and mm-hmm. just didn't quite get there. I actually like We Were Soldiers. Though. I did too. Pretty good. Um, he's like best friends with Mel, and they're doing the. He's the one who wrote the screenplay for the crazy sequel, The Passion of the Christ. Oh no shit! Yeah. I don't the, even. What's that movie about? Oh, it's it's before Easter, so it's about the resurrection. It's the three days before the resurrection. So it's zombie Jesus. It's zombie Jesus. You know what? Leave it to Mel to make zombie Jesus. What are uh, you doing to me, brother? <laughs> he's he's cuckoo out of his fucking mind. <laughs> you wait real quick. Did you see his interview about the Will Smith thing? No, but I'm sure it was gold. They no, they asked him. He was on Fox News with that Jesse asshole, the really racist one, and that that tracks. Yeah, and. He's like fidgety the whole time. Like they're having a conversation, not about Will Smith. It's a whole, but, and he's like pulling at his collar and he's like, looks really like, and he's like really twitchy. And then he's like, Hey, I wanted to know like if you had been Chris Rock or if you had been Will Smith, do you think people would have had the same reaction? And, and Mel goes, uh, mm, uh, and over the, like this is live TV. You hear Mel's handler go, and that's all the time we have. Yeah. Thank you, Jesse. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And there's like, time it's, to go. it's fucking gold. But that's another that's another story. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, this uh, like a Michael Bay movie. This whole podcast is going to be filled with tangents. The I'm cool with time. it. <laughs> we're but, in the, we're in the spirit. Yeah. You know? Well, let's get to the king of tangents. Bad Boys Two, to me, one of the crowning achievements of all of cinema. Um, one of the most vulgar displays of power that I've ever seen since Pantera and just <laughs> gore level, just absolute <laughs> nonsense because this does feel like the temper tantrum that he throws after Pearl Harbor doesn't get respectability bombs critically and commercially. And he's like, okay, yeah, that's what you fucking want where you're going to get fucking all of it. Now, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get fucking Will Smith threatening to fuck, to rape an underage boy on the on Martin Lawrence's porch, I'm like I'm gonna throw in every terrible. You know what? Two rats fucking in this movie, large caliber like tomfoolery in this movie. How many cars are destroyed in this movie? How many dead bodies are run over in one freeway chase? Joe Pantoliano looks like he's gonna have a stroke at any moment. Like this is. Cinema, baby. One of the greatest times I've ever had at the movies, and I feel horrible about it. I haven't seen I hadn't seen this since the theater, and then I watched it right before part three came out. It I just, watched it at least once a year. And I, I, it was not one that stuck with me. And I rewatched it, and I think we talked about it back then. And I was like, man, this is really fucking great. And then this time with you was the most fun I've had watching is watching it with you, which is one this is one of your favorites. So I really enjoyed you know, the stuff that you knew about, you have all the lines memorized. I don't, it's, I feel like I've seen it the third time I've seen it. You know, I have half the movie memorized, right? Not more, but it's, you know, like watching it this time, I mean, this is way, way, way high up the list of his best shit because it is the most Michael Bay. We, we use that a lot when we're talking is like, maybe it's not the all best, of but his it's worst tendencies yeah. like combined into one film, but it's 
also like batshit. I mean, the action alone is so fucking cool. I mean, like the opening scene, like he he goes totally crazy with the spinning camera. I mean, the, the way that he really, I think this is one of the films too, where he really goes nuts with, um, some interesting camera techniques like that, that, that spinning shot, yeah, the he, rotating 360 the, camera when it's them and the Rastafarians and that shootout. It's so fucking cool. And it's going through those CGI windows yep. and the door and shit. Oh my God. Which he talked about again in that interview from EW, he was talking about how he came up with the circular track shot from the first movie is that they were just riding along in the van and he made them stop the van, get out and do it in like an impromptu shot with Will Smith because in his head he went, this is the trailer shot. If I get this circular, like kind of dolly shot around him, that's like a hero thing. Like that'll be what everybody remembers from it. And he doubles down on that so many times. It's every throughout his career every film has a shot i think he bests it in bad boys too because he does it with both him and martin lawrence twice once in the opening which also we should note that he superimposes his directorial credit (laughs) over a burning cross it it, it, that's like one of the ultimate like middle fingers like i'm coming for all y'all right now and then you just have fucking will smith throwing off a kkk robe and like going into full like N-word laden gun battles with these these horrible Bayou racists. <laughs> Michael, with later, Michael Shannon. <laughs> you were fucking Michael Shannon in it the whole time. But then later, he does it again when uh, mm. he gets the phone call that his, you know, Martin Lawrence gets the phone call that his sister's been kidnapped. A smoking hot Gabrielle Union. Um, but he does it again. And I think that's the best hero shot of his, his entire career. I mean, hell fucking Edgar Wright puts it into hot fuzz and has the whole like scene built around it where Danny goes, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. You know, like it's just, everybody saw that shot and was like, how do I do that? You know, it's, I mean, it's fucking cool. It's really cool. I think the, uh, it's funny because this movie is so tied in my mind to Miami Vice the 2006 man film, because, you know, bad boys already is a modern Miami vice. You know, the, the first one is like, this is the real Miami and this is a different kind of cultural side, but you know, you get the insane fever dream of bad boys too. And then you get the like very also one of the weirder Michael Mann movies, Miami vice, I think, you know, a very the weirdest. The, yeah. Well, maybe black hat best it, but, but very strange. Yeah. Um, but it has that, but it's also this very more realistic, more like much less action, much more, you know, full on Michael Mann romanticism. And you have the one side of, it's just interesting. They're both kind of playing in the same sandbox. And I just love, I love cinema. We get both. We can have both of them. See, I think, uh, Bay makes a movie that's closer to Miami Vice later in his career mm. um, that we'll get into. But like here, to me, this is the maximalist action spectacle that I've always wanted. Like everything about it is vulgar and awful and makes you feel unclean. And like you couldn't imagine anyone making this movie almost 20 years later because it's just, it's so contemptuous for the very idea of criticism. Like it, it, it has Peter Stormare as like a rogue Russian drug dealer who gets drunk and comes in and tries to machine gun an entire house of, of 
his rivals. Like it, it does everything that you shouldn't do in a movie. It has an entire digression where Martin Lawrence is tripping balls on ecstasy and is just talking about the fish in his captain's home. Big fucking eyes, nice fucking fish. One of the craziest things about this one is I think it's one of his most violent movies, period. Like the chopping up of bodies. Um, like it's even if you're not seeing the violence, it's a very grody. Like when they show up to Peter Stormare and they basically drop like the bucket full of his partner's like body parts. It's the most exploitative. Yeah. Like it feels like exploitation cinema just bay style. Yeah, because like the chopped up body, the <laughs> The, the whole finger the dead, thing. The, the finger thing. But even with the sex, too, to where, like, you have the corpse with the gigantic tits that Martin Lawrence can't stop staring at as they jiggle. Um, the whole Guantanamo fucking Bay finale where they drive through a shanty town in Cuba. And it's only because of one toss-off line of dialogue that they justify it. They go, I think the cocaine's made here. And then they just drive a yellow Humvee through this shanty town. And you're like... Yeah, but why do they make the cocaine there? Like, do these people have any other option? Does this just give you the right to run through their home? They're bad people because they make cocaine, according to Michael, Michael Bay. Yep, 100%. Yep. It's a, it's you a deserve free... to die, and I hope you burn in hell. It's, it's a free ride. And then, yeah, again, to end up at Guantanamo Bay, like, Guantanamo Bay! Like, I mean, like, when it was in the news and shit was being talked about, it was at the beginning of the torture session. So yeah, you're at Guantanamo Bay at the beginning of the torture sessions like this. And again, he literally just, like, lands on the front fucking lawn. And he's like, I'm going to kill this guy in front of military police and have him fall onto a fucking mine and, exp- and blow in half. Like... It's like Michael Morbius just going off the shores of Long Island and saying it's international waters. They're basically like, Guantanamo Bay, there's no law here, right? We can do whatever (laughs) we want. If I blow up Johnny Tapio with a a trip mine, it's fine. I can get away with it. Yes. I mean, the very concept of this movie is insane because it begins with them as cops and it ends with them invading Cuba. Invading Cuba. And there's the whole scene that you were even talking about, like while we were watching it, where like those weird ex Delta Force dudes who are on like their SWAT team come up to them and they're like, "Looks like you guys are about to get in some bad decisions." We're in. We're in. yeah. It's You're like what? I saw this with my dad in the theater, and he started fucking laughing. He's like, "What the hell? That they're gonna invade Cuba?" Yes. Oh, and I, I also love because they do this in a lot of these movies where if it's personal, everything's thrown out the window. So, like, narrative-wise. There is no law now. Yes, they're like, they're like, oh, man, like, sorry, this guy's an international drug dealer and killed hundreds of people, but he's got your sister. We're going to go to Cuba for that. We're going to fuck him up now. He's got your sister. Okay, cool. He does it in Transformers 3, 2, or, like, the world's ending, and the only reason they go is to, like, save his girlfriend. And, like, she's in there. I'm like, cool. So you have a whole team of 15 dudes who get vaporized. Well, and also everybody's on your side now. There's that great moment where like the Delta Force guys come up, team up with them, and then they're about to fly out. And then fucking Joey Pants walks up and he's like, hey, I got you some more reinforcements. (laughs) My buddy, the CIA. My buddy in the CIA hooked me up. Don't ask me, but they're spies. And you're like, really? You're a police captain in my fucking Amy and you have CIA contacts all of a sudden. What have you been doing with your life? Yeah, it's absolutely fucking absurd, but it's great. 
But unfortunately, Bad Boys Two didn't do that great at the box office. It also even. notoriously like went over budget and it was kind of hard to release and blah blah blah. So Michael Bay went and worked for Steven Spielberg at DreamWorks and made The Island, which I don't hate this movie. I think the first thirty minutes of it are rough and very boring, possibly the most bland filmmaking of his entire career. Like anybody could have, like Francis Lawrence could have directed the opening of the Island. But once you get outside of the weird futuristic clone community, like it gets a lot better because it becomes just a straight up chase movie then for almost two hours. Yeah. I think my biggest issue this film is, um, I don't, I really don't like you McGregor's English accent, especially earlier on in his career. It's horrible. And he's just really unbelievable. And like Scar Joe had not done enough acting lessons. She's particularly vapid. I know she's supposed to be playing like kind of a, a, a clone who doesn't really know what's going on, but like it feels the whole thing feels for a Bay film. One of his more empty movies like well, very surface level. Well, and he also makes one of the the more obvious excuses for his lame-brained humor is that you know, he's like, "Oh, they haven't matured past 15." Like they basically say that out loud. So they're allowed to make like weird toilet jokes and stuff. It's like I pointed out to you, I think what while the we were waiting to yeah, the can joke where they go to this this biker bar and they come in, they're like they're looking for Steve Buscemi's character because you know, McGregor and him have an established relationship. Buscemi is just like a dude who, who works at this plant where the, the, the clones all live. And then, um, you know, they, they come up and they've tracked him to this bar and the guy behind the bar is like, who are you looking for? And they're like, they say his name and they're like, Oh, he's in the can. He's like, he's in a can. Yeah. He's taking a dump. He's taking a dump in a can. And you're supposed to sit there like, this is the worst version of War on Hardy I've ever sat through. Like, this is so fucking bad. It's like a who's on first Abbott and Costello bit. And yeah. just like, yeah. Um, it's terrible. But the island does have, uh, for my money, one of the darkest scenes in Michael Bay's career. Oh, yeah. That euthanasia scene where they put the mom down, the clone mom down while its baby has just been taking away, like taken away from it, and like that's the last thing she sees and then dies. Also, the clone birthing sequence is really icky and gross. Yeah, it kind of has feelings of like Demolition Man or like those like those kind of images. Well, kind of like how um, you know Armageddon is his Irwin Allen movie. Like to me, this is his Logan's Run. Oh yeah, like people talk about how he's not like a huge fan of cinema or how he, he can't uh, really reference it at all. Or you can't really find any reference points. You watch his movies and that's not true at all. Like he clearly loves movies. Like he's referencing them all the time. Sometimes even his own movies, but like he's working through almost these archetypes. He has the buddy cop archetype movie, like almost yeah. like his Walter Hill film is the bad boys movies. Armageddon is like his Irwin Allen disaster movie. This is his like seventies, you know, dystopian sci-fi movie that he gets to make. And like, he's hitting all the marks pretty well. Yeah. It's funny. Cause the, you were talking about the first part being pretty boring, especially for a Michael Bay movie. And it's him doing the parts that in dystopian films could kind of be interesting if, if directed well, where you could kind of get into the world. Of, oh, this is, this is pretty interesting what they're going for here, but it's pretty, it's pretty generic. 
um, like the dystopian elements of this. But on top of that, we were kind of talking about, you know, the sledgehammer mentality of Michael Bay. And there are a lot of the best films that are about clones and about what is it to be human um, aren't big action movies. Like I think of films like Moon, you know, which Blade, is a, Runner. A Blade Runner, you know, um, the best I would say that's big, but it's barely about that is Oblivion, the Michael, the Tom Cruise movie, yeah. you know, but like this is... Which Kaczynski is closer in kinship to Bay. Very much so. That's why I'm, I'm very, even the looks of what he's doing for Maverick, um, the new Top Gun, looks again, connecting back to Bruckheimer and Simpson by way of Bay. Like some of the imagery looks very of that time. But yeah, it's just, it's kind of funny that the movie becomes a, a second movie when the action starts, especially with this one. It kind of feels like two separate movies to me. Yeah, I always find it funny that his, one of his early mentors was a, a woman named Janine Basinger, who was a professor at Wesleyan College and went on to be quite the film historian because even though his movies do jump around, he's obviously spent a lot of different times in different genres. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like he's interested in those genres too much. Like the earliest part of the island is the most genre-y stuff that he gets, but he clearly just wants to make his action movie and drop giant train wheels off the back of a semi and crush other trucks and stuff. And like, that's what he wants to do, which is fine. Like he's the, the master of like destroying things on screen. Like if you know your lane, stay in it, I guess. Yeah. It just seems like you compare this. I think it's also feels similar to minority report where the kind of vibe of that, the near future, the way they designed the downtown city and the action scenes, but one also probably a warm up for transformers, which would come two years later with the same screenwriters with with Orky and Kurtzman. So it feels like a, a, a leg up, but it feels like he's kind of playing Spielberg territory there too. But like minority report is, is such a cohesive film, you know, of like one. And the idea is so, interesting that Spielberg kind of makes it his own. And this one is like, there's, there's nothing unique about the clone men, the clone stuff, but it is some good action. Like once you get to the action scenes, like there's some good stuff. I will say that the, the hover bike thing is some of the worst shit he's done. It looks really bad. Especially yeah. the CGI of that time is like, it's really, well, he well, pushed that's it what I mean far. with like the trial run stuff. Y- is yeah. That it felt yeah. like him, like kind of working out the kinks a little bit before applying that technology to the gigantic robots of transformers. Absolutely. You know? And then, you know, after the Island, we basically spend a lot of years making transformers films, which to me, have always become kind of like a giant ATM machine in a yeah. weird way that he could now call in favors. You know, he, they didn't start that way. He's making these movies with, you know, DreamWorks and, and Spielberg and stuff, which, you know, was one of his favorite directors, like growing up, like he cites Raiders of the Lost Ark, kind of like M. Night Shyamalan does as being like the movie that really inspired him to where he watched it and was like, oh shit, I want to do that, you know? Yes. But then he finally seems to get tired of making Transformers movies and makes Pain and Gain. That was one of the great one-for-me moments in Michael Bay history and, man, or really cinema history in general. But, man, Pain and Gain is a wild film. Yeah, I'd never seen that till this, this watch, too. That was another one that I had... Crazy. I know. I don't know why I skipped it. I'm honestly not a Monster Wahlberg fan, um, and so I kind of... 
I kind of avoided it. Um, I mean, I think when it came out, I wasn't quite as honest about my love of Bay. You know, I hadn't really come to that yet. And so I'm sorry I missed it. I really, really enjoyed this watch. Like a lot of his films, it's probably 20 minutes too long. Oh, um, they're all way too long. Yeah, but this one actually has a reason for it. It's some story. I think he gets some of the best performances he's gotten in his career. I think it's one of The Rock's best performances comedically. Like, hilariously. Anthony Mackie's great. It is The the Rock's best performance. Yeah, and in terms of, like, it's not his best movie, but I think it's his best. Mm, What's better? I mean, I'm a huge Fast Five fan, just as an action movie, so... You think that's better than Pain and Gain? Maybe. Nah. Yeah. crazy, son. I know, but but you mentioned when we were talking, this has, like, been called his Coen Brothers movie. The Mm -hmm. irony of him using Coen actors and everything. Um, This very much has that, you know print the legend kind of mentality, uh, the ridiculousness, it, but the ridiculousness of side characters, which he's already been doing and the Coens do as well. But this is, this really allows him to do it more because there's no real action. You know, it's, you're not, you're not cutting for an action set piece. You're just like, no, let the people like, let Anthony Shalhoub have a whole scene. Like you said, berating, you know, uh, an overweight girl and a kid with acne, you know, like, because that's actually character stuff and it all works better. And I think he really, we were talking about he understands how to use Wahlberg's dopiness to his advantage because Wahlberg, whenever he tries to be a smart guy, like the happening classic line of no, ma'am, no, it just comes across like a complete imbecile. And with this one, it's like, that's the point. He's a dumbass. You know, the world's dumbest criminals. Yeah, he's back to Boogie Nights territory with this. Very much. That is, he's just kind of this dopey charmer who thinks he has an American dream and wants to pursue it. Um, to me, one of the great things that's ever happened is that this became like the warm up act for Wolf of Wall Street in mm. 2013. Like, they're both tackling almost identical themes about like people scheming and cutting corners on their way to achieving their own version of the American dream and just how like perverse and obnoxious both movies are while being downright hilarious the entire time. Like Wolf of Wall Street clearly blew every other movie off the stage in 2013, <laughs> but like Pain and Gain was a nice warm up act, man. Like they're really, this is a really, really good film. It's really, it's one of his funniest, like straight up, funniest um everybody and like all the they're they're the trios like way they play off one another it's also really impressive just the budget i mean like it was under 20 million dollars to make this movie and so you said it's one for him but like i was reading about ambulance as well as he he knows how to like cut corners and, and get and get stuff done you know and for a movie to get made in 2013 for under 20 million with those fucking stars with that amount of locations, like as a period piece, are you fucking kidding me? Like it's mind blowing. So that alone is a testament to him being the general. And it still has all the chases, the go fast boat, the the exotic locations, the crazy cinematography, the rock getting into a prison yard fight. Like, if you, I didn't know that this movie was made for like $17 million until somebody told me. I thought it was just another like $70, $80 million yep. budget that Michael Bay made and blew on the like a personal passing project. But like, it's incredible what he pulls off with this. And also the fact of how hard 
he kind of changes gears while still staying the same guy. And again, you have a lot of the same actors showing up. Like Ed Harris comes in as oh, the yeah. private investigator who who goes after, you know, Daniel Lugo and his his meathead buddies. I mean, this movie even manages to make me not hate uh Rebel Wilson. Me too. I usually hate her. Yeah, I just want to see shot out of a cannon every time that she appears on screen. And here I'm like, oh, she's fine. Peter Stramare shows up for like a scene. Like it's, again, it's him calling in favors, but like they clearly like him because they wouldn't, like Peter Stramare, this is what, his third or fourth movie making At together least, between yeah. Bad Boys 2, The Cosmonaut, and Armageddon. He's in, he's in one Transformers, I believe. One of the Transformers movies, like, and Stumare is notoriously like a weirdo. So like, if he's a touchy actor, I couldn't imagine him like keep wanting to come back to like Michael Bay sets. Well, Wahlberg did three films with him. Yeah. You know, he did two Transformers and then, and then this as well. And yeah, it's, um, it's also because it's his one non-action film. Like there's, there's, there's adventurous scenes, but I really, yeah. but in terms of like not big shootouts, like not car, not full on car chases, but he makes it so there kind of is like, but comparatively to his other yeah, stuff, right? No, you're right. Big, but there's even like a machine gun fight when they're pursuing the rock, like after that robbery and like there's, there's stuff. Yeah. Again, it's sporadic. It's more like bad boys level, the original right. in terms of like how little action there is as compared to like, say bad boys Two. Um, right. Like this seems pretty still, far off though for me, but that's why I mean meant by like, he's changing gears, but he's still the same guy. Like it's all still there. Even the weird fucking humor. Like, is this the first movie where he's ever really addressed religion at all? Because the one thing that I found odd about this film is that like, the Rock is a cokehead turned born again Christian who's also a homophobe and punches a priest who tries to touch him. Like it's it, it's some awkward territory that he treads to where again it doesn't feel political. It just feels like a thing that Bay believes where he's like, plus the church is fucked up, right? It's crazy. They're all hypocrites. Anyway, let's blow something up. Yeah, it's um that that scene is a little bit hard to take or like, Oh, cause it's it actually not hard, but it feels like it's, it's going, rough. it feels like it's going toward actually kind of a sweet emotional thing where I was like, it, cause he has this like, it's the actor. I love that actor who plays him too from Billy Madison. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, he's going to be this like this kind of moral compass in the film. And it, they don't play it at first that way. They think, Oh, he's gonna be this nice guy. And then of course, then he just like touches. It's very much like that scene in Conan the Barbarian. He's like, you're so well grown, you know, <laughs> like and like strokes his chest and then, you know, ends up, well, and they really play up Laying the rocks, uh, homophobia too. Like even when they go to the sex toy warehouse, the first time he calls Daniel and he goes, Hey, so like a lot of homo shit here, a lot of it, <laughs> like, and just looking around at like weird sex dolls and everything. But it's again, like, I don't think Bay's homophobic. I think he just thinks gay people are funny the same way that he, it's the otherness of them that is like weird to him to where like, cause he even has that great is <laughs> one of the things that I've screamed the most out of any, any of his films is, is that, that great moment in the, I don't know if we can label it great, but it's certainly a moment and I find it funny, but the moment where they're, you know, Will Smith and Martin Lawrence in the electronics store in Bad Boys 2 have that weird intimate moment when it's caught on tape and broadcast through the whole 
uh, store and like everybody's misinterpreting it as their lovers and then you have the fat it's all of Michael Bay's problematic humor in like one scene because yeah. you have the fat black mom get running around and be like mm, you got porno and homo shows up in here like it's just it's crazy and also like walking out and yelling at Will Smith y'all motherfuckers need Jesus you also have the nerdy white like salesperson who likes like, rap who loves rap and like is trying to talk Ebonics to, to Will Smith and Martin Lawrence and it's you know it's all there it's like I mean again if you want to encapsulate or just say who Michael Bay is like you said before like He's like a 13-year-old boy from like 1996. He's Eric Cartman. I yeah, stick by the Eric Cartman you just yell, You yell gay at your friends across the, you know, at that time. And now, thankfully, we've, you know, times have changed. But it's like, he's that guy and he never grew out of it. You know? That will always be funny to him and for good or ill. Yeah. You and know? he doesn't get what the problem is. Yeah. What like, do you mean? I don't see the big deal. That's yeah. his, you know. It's funny. What do you mean I can't say faggot? Like, yeah. it's like, and you're like, uh, yeah, you can't, you, you can't man, like chill. <laughs> but I, we only got one more movie before we get to ambulance and that's his only Netflix foray six underground, which you brought up Miami vice earlier to me. This is his Miami vice. Mm. Like this is the movie that is all of his fascinations, both visually thematically and like with his humor and everything, but it's all folded in on one another and just amplified to like 12 because Netflix obviously wrote him a blank check and went, give us a Michael Bay movie. We can stream. He gave them all the Michael Bay. The opening car chase is 20 minutes long. It's amazing. It just, and then that's just how, and then I, I read a funny thing about ambulance where they said, it's the whole idea for the movie is based on one scene from six underground where she's performing that same different actor star is performing, um, surgery in the back seat on M- Melanie uh, Laurent Laurent while they're, while they're driving. Um, who's the hottest woman in the world in this movie. She's never looked better. Yeah. Like, and no one has, I mean, everyone looks just great in this. Um, and this movie, it, Again, I don't think it's based on an IP, but it feels like one of those movies would be based on like a graphic novel from like Image or something. You brought up the losers, yeah, like that really. kind of, yeah, like that kind of movie. Well, it's his Men on a Mission movie. It's his dirty half dozen, let's say, yeah, because like that's the type of film that he's making. It's almost like that or Mission Impossible or any of those, to where it's just it's about a rich guy, Ryan Reynolds, who fakes his own death, uses all of his wealth to recruit a bunch of other, you know, basically warriors so that they can fight injustice and how do they fight injustice by trying to take out a middle eastern dictator yep well it's it's funny to have him go from because you know we we did we we talked enough about 13 hours but you know that was between pain and gain and this but yeah you have that's probably his most quote unquote realistic movie. It's not, but it's like, he's trying to base it on a real event. Right? It's his black Hawk down. It's his, yeah. Black Hawk down or his zero dark 30. And you have that, you have that element. You have all the ridiculous, like sci-fi insanity of the transformers movies. And I like, I think he kind of mixes it in here too, where it's like the fun gadget kind of James Bondy gadgetry of everything. I mean, the whole magnet idea is fucking awesome. Like they tried to do it in the last, um, the last uh, Fast and the Furious movie, and it didn't work that well. But the way that Bay knows how to use a gimmick, and and Bay also as a um, 
as an antidote to the MCU, I was thinking about this when I was watching, um, even I was watching Transformers 3. He'll play a scene out. Like, you watch an MCU movie and things just wash by you. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. he knows, he goes, if he's got a good, fun thing, he's like, this is going to be a 20 minute scene. Like, we're going to play this out. It's, that's why the movies are all so fucking long because he doesn't just brush past stuff. And he knows how to play a scene out in this movie. I love the magnet scene on the boat where they keep turning it on and off and people are flying up against the walls. When they do it in the kitchen and the fucking knives yep. fly through that one chef. Amazing. It's it's fucking crazy. And then like you were saying earlier, everything with the parkour, like you can see that he... He straps a GoPro cam to that dude. He, and that's what he's always been good about. Like he... There's the kind of like dumb shit you make fun of in action films where it's like the the X view of something. And it's just like, that. Nah, we don't need to see that. But Bay's always been really good about knowing where to put the camera, but it's not a gimmick to him, to him. It's right. all about motion. It's yes. about forward motion. It's about putting you in the seat of the characters and making you feel what they feel like. That's what he wants to do. That's what Bayhem is all about. It, there is a method to that sort of madness. Mm-hmm. And it really is the, the experiential side of cinema. It's about conveying a, a certain level of like feeling or emotion or even like like if you're if a guy is running parkour in the middle of you know Hong Kong at the the, the top of one of their highest buildings, he wants you with a GoPro cam right next to that dude to feel what that feels like, to have that rush, to feel like you can fall off that building at any fucking moment. Like that's amazing to me. That's better than any virtual reality, any theme park ride or anything. Like that's what movies are made for. It's to, to, to put you to bring up like Roger Ebert who hated his films again, but it is the empathy machine. It's to put you in the seat of that character and have you just have that rush that they experience. Yeah, on top of that, he's also a, pr- a practical master. I mean, like yeah. you said, the Bayhem is he knows how to work with these, you know, um, demolitionists on his sets and, and stunt people. And like when we get to Ambulance, there's some ridiculous amount of coordination for some of these shots where I'm like, oh, my God, I don't know how many takes they could do of that, you know, let alone, you know, how he's reset <laughs> to redo some of the stuff they had to do. Like, well, it's like I I was listening to a podcast recently about Fargo and they cited Roger Deakins where he was like, you know, we only had one shot with the wood chipper gag. You know why? Because you can't make snow unread. <laughs> <laughs> like, the blood covers it and it's done. Yeah. Um, but no, I think he's even even what you're saying earlier about the Transformers films is. He shoots as much as he can practically and not to the extreme level that like Nolan does where it doesn't, it's like not that exciting sometimes Uh, like Bay knows how to shoot things and make them very like visually um, enticing and exciting and then mixes CG and when he needs it. Right. You know, it's an additive, not the main ingredient. He's like uh, George Miller in that respect. Right. You know, like the real practicality. The other thing that I really love about Six Underground, though, is the fact that it feels like the most optimistic movie that he's made since possibly Armageddon, Mm -hmm. because in the end, he takes this incredibly nihilistic film about soldiers going in and, and creating a coup and incursions, which politically sounds horrible. Again, it's this concept of like, what if this rich guy just decided how politics were going to go and, and used his power to manipulate them? But it, it it's 
both a refutation of like the Elon Musk bullshit idea of like, well, if I'm rich and just give enough money, they'll do anything like Ryan Reynolds entire motive is that he was that guy and basically witnessed a bar, a bombing in a third world country while he was doing that and decided to take up this cause, like, and be motivated by it and become, you know, this silent ghost that haunts nothing but terrorists. But beyond even that, the thing that's amazing about it is that it's about what it feels like to be alone. And like, that's what Michael Bay seems to be getting at as he gets older, because he does that in uh, 13 hours as well. It's, it's one of their shared qualities. Let's say is that, you know, in 13 hours, it's all about these guys. Like they have found a purpose in violence, but they've also found a purpose in one another. And as long as you have a purpose and you have that togetherness, it's better than being in an anonymous, like nameless num like number, which is what six underground is about. And six underground literally ends on that entire montage of like people in love and people finding like their purpose together. And that Ryan Reynolds monologue about the idea of like, yeah, we're great on our own, but together, like we're unstoppable. And that's like the closest you can ever get to like a real genuine positive sentiment from these Michael Bay films. It's like how Armageddon celebrates the idea of like, what if humanity came together to actually stop our own extinction? It's a basic concept, but for him, it means the world. Yeah. You want to get to ambulance? Let's do it. All right. I miss you more than Michael Bay missed the mark. When he made Pearl Harbor I miss you more than that movie missed the point And that's an awful lot, girl And now, now you've gone away And all I'm trying to say Is Pearl Harbor sucked And I miss you Shitty movie too. Pearl Harbor sucks, and I miss you. Pearl Harbor sucked. Just a little bit more than I miss. We're back talking about Michael Bay and ambulance in particular. But before we do that, Martin, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. Top five Bay, go. The Rock. Number one. Hmm. Um, number two is now Bad Boys 2. Hmm. Number three is honestly 13 hours. Oh, you nasty. Number four will be Armageddon. Go deeper, girl. <laughs> and then number five... Coming in with a weird one, I'm going to do uh, Transformers 3, Dark of the Moon. Unexpected, but I respect it. And you? I would go with number one is Armageddon. Number two is Bad Boys 2. Number three is Six Underground. Number four is 
The Rock. Number five is honestly probably Ambulance, what we're about to talk about. Oh, shit. Yeah, like this. And and I only rank it beneath these ones because I've only had the chance to see it once. But I'll tell you what, in terms of a few first viewing, it ranks right up there with seeing The Rock for the first time, seeing Bad Boys 2 for the first time, seeing Six Underground in a theater, thankfully. But like... This is a good fucking movie, and it's 100% a Michael Bay movie. Yeah, I feel bad I didn't put it in my top five, because, I mean, I need to watch it again, but this is fantastic. I mean, it's such a... I love the, like, narrative economy of the beginning, and it just, like, fucking just jumps right into this movie. Like, you get, like, seconds alone with, like... It gives you basically a two-minute setup with uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen's uh, soldier who's home, has a family, is unemployed, struggling to get you know any kind of government assistance for his can- for wife's cancer or his wife's cancer, and just basically goes and meets up with his adopted brother, Jake Gyllenhaal. Weird plot point number one of many. Um, and Jake Gyllenhaal basically pulls a Neil McCauley on him from Heat and is like, you know, this whole intro is basically the, an extended version yep. of the Dennis Haysbert scene from Heat where he's lured in <laughs> I thought the same and basically thing. Ta- ta- <laughs> said like, hey, if you work with us, we'll be good. All right, cool. Yeah, let's do it. Only here, uh, Yaya's character, whose name is, uh, I believe, Will. Willie Sharp. Yeah. The same name as William Fichtner from uh, Armageddon. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Colonel Willie Sharp, I believe. And so he's pulled in to this bank robbery that Jill and Hall and these ex-mercs are going to pull off. And boy, we're off to the races. And then we get Michael Bay's Den of Thieves. This, this movie is fucking bananas. And the first thing I want to talk about... <laughs> And I think the thing for me that stuck out the most is is the drone work. It's it's amazing. This, it's a total like new toy in my cho- toy chest moment from him. This the drone shit that I've seen drones. I, we've seen drone use of them in a lot of films for the last like 10, 15 years. Sure, you know because you can you know you go to you go to any film fest and every indie filmmaker uses it for, instead of a helicopter and it looks like a drone. You know what's really notorious for it? The the strain of Netflix ready docs. Yes. They use them a bunch, oh, especially yeah. for like how to catch a killer type stuff. All and it, and it 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 can do some cool, you know, imagery, but I mean, it's a really cheap way to add any kind of production value to your new like indie movie. And that is not what he's doing. No. At all. Michael Bay, I'm not sure if, you know, any of our listeners have watched, like, drone racing online. And these guys... Yes! I was going to bring that up, too. He's literally... I guarantee Michael Bay, I can see it in his mind. He saw drone racing, goes, I want to do that during a car chase. The camera's doing it, and it it races through. And then there's a shot. So for for the listeners, he uses this drone, and... At first, you think it's CG. Like, if it was a shittier movie, it'd be like, oh, I'm gonna do this weird CGI shot. It's kind of like early days of CG where they'd be like, we're gonna go up a building for no reason. He shoots up this building, flips it around, comes back down to the car chase. The car chase is still going, does not cut. And there's this one scene where the ambulance, oh, it's a car, uh, cop car, jumps over the drone. And the drone ducks onto the car. It's fucking. And there, he definitely did that for real. Oh, yeah. 
There's no way he didn't. It looks so fucking good. And it's uh, bringing it back to your idea about like the first days of CGI. This also feels like a guy who became suddenly obsessed with drone YouTube. Like, have you ever watched those YouTube videos of like, let's here, let me show you what I did by like just flying this drone through this crazy, like abandoned warehouse or whatever. And it just zips in and out. Like that's what he's doing, Mm -hmm. you know? And he's going, okay, well, this technology exists. What's the next level that we can essentially pull it to? And yeah, like you said, like add a car chase, add machine guns, add a bank robbery, add Jake Gyllenhaal. Like it's just, it's absolutely fucking incredible, like visually. It feels honestly similar to a pra- like a practical bullet time. Like the way that bullet time kind of blew me away when I first saw it of like, oh, this is a cool toy. Also, it came from commercials. Sure. You know, and then, oh, what if we did this in an action film? This was very similar, I think, where it's like, okay, drones have been around, but are we, have we been using them to their full potential? Have you ever thought about drones? Have you taken a taken some time to consider your Lord, Lord and, and Savior, Savior the coked out drone? It's like every time it happened, though, you saw me, I'd grip, I'd grip my fucking, um, I'd grip the fucking hand rests on my, on my chair, man. It was nuts. Well, it makes you to go back to the idea of Bay making experiential movies is that it feels like you're on a roller coaster. Yes. He takes you up the hill and right back down as quickly, you know, and it, and also he's using the drones, not only in the car chases and stuff, but like all of a sudden there'd just be those crazy sped up shots where you're flying behind Jake Gyllenhaal as he runs down a bank hallway with a, a you know, a giant machine gun in his hands. And it's absolutely insane. Like you, it's a guy being like, okay, my visual style might be getting slightly stale. How do I spice this up a little bit? And he found a way. He, there's a couple scenes I remember too off of that where it's not even like a movement scene where he'd use it almost like a crazy, like a, um, a dolly track, right? Like it would shoot under a table and then into like a dialogue scene. Like he was, you know, it wasn't just for action scenes. He really does some cool stuff with it, but apparently they're custom drones too. Like he had some custom cameras like built for this and like even built some himself because he was manning a lot of these scenes too. And he even talked about how like, to give up a little bit of control on the movie. Like he was having Jake Gyllenhaal since you're, you're in these confined oh, spaces yeah. or especially like once, you know, they're in, they hijack that ambulance, the titular ambulance, if you will, the ambulance, the ambulance. And like, they're all in the back of it. Like Jake Gyllenhaal is filming some of those scenes as they like set up and they're talking and everything because it's like, you couldn't fit that many people in such a confined space. And he wanted you to feel like claustrophobic and like you were locked in with these people. It's, it's funny because there's so many films in the nineties and after of, what if we have an action film that takes place in one location? I mean, Phone Booth comes to mind, right? And I like Phone Booth, fine. Which Michael like, Bay almost directed. Oh, well, that makes sense. Because he notoriously said he got the script and went, well, how do we get this film out of the fucking Phone Booth? Which is a good question, you know? And this film, I think, if any other filmmaker was doing it, I heard they're doing a film called Ambulance. The whole thing takes place in an ambulance, which I guess the original was more like that, more like, right. more like the guilty, where it's about, you know, it's one of those single location, like contained movies yeah, or lock. It would, it would just lock. be like lock with an ambulance. Yeah, very much so. And this one, I'm like, again, him, like the idea of what you're saying, you know, this is his Logan run with the Island, but then just makes the action that he wants to make. The setup here too is what if it's about this like closed room thing, but also 
a ridiculously huge car chase movie. Like you almost forget sometimes. Like he keeps the it keeps the tension up, but it's not that like again lock. It's not a, a closed room lock room mystery or anything like that. Well, and it's also very much his uh, Los Angeles film because collateral as fuck. Well, that it's collateral as fuck, and he even like highlights the L.A. and ambulance and makes them stand out during the title sequence because this is about touring the hard concrete of Los Angeles and, and giving you a peek into the the parts of Los Angeles that you only see in movies, not only like collateral, but also like straight time reservoir dogs, stuff like that. Like heat again, yeah, man heat again. Like it just, how do we feel the city? How do you feel it around you? How do I create not to be cliched, but a character out of this place? Yeah. And also like you were, when we got out of the movie, like this is fucking, it's just speed, you know, and not just speed, but yeah, it, I felt the same before you said that, because when I first saw speed, it was just like this experience of, just especially once once again the bus it doesn't fucking stop and this had that that kind of feel of you know I want to watch this at Saturday at 3 p.m. on my TV like this is like the this is like the perfect matinee movie yeah on a weekend it's like I'm gonna buy the shit out of this we're gonna watch it a bunch and I'm just gonna like it's just gonna be on it's just gonna be on in the background it's just like because it's I watched Speed is my favorite Saturday afternoon movie period and this might be up there now of just like you get in the, the you get in the seat there. I think also like there's some thematic things too, just on a story level that are really consistent. I mean, I think specifically about the idea of found family, you yeah. know, that you have in Pearl, you know, Pearl Harbor, the opening scene of two um, non-official brothers who are brothers. This is the same thing torn apart by circumstances and by an uncaring world and, you know, them kind of butting heads against each other. And I think also like Hall is at his most extra. He's Fucking, he's unhinged in this. Crazy in this. Yeah, absolutely off the chain, like almost at like velvet buzzsaw levels of insane. That yeah, not a great movie, but, but this I is the good side a of fun, it. <laughs> fun Joan Hall performance, or maybe you like Nightcrawler more. Would I do. be the more apt analog here because they're both LA movies as well. But the other thing that struck me too is that this feels like his COVID movie because mm. the locked room premise, how you could basically do it without having many locations, even though you're shooting all around Los Angeles and everything. But like she even has, there's an entire screen sequence, which has become in vogue since COVID, since you had people like Steven Soderbergh shooting stuff like Kimmy and things to where it all takes place with people talking to each other through screens. Here you have a surgery screen, but or a surgery scene like performed entirely through screens while she's getting tips and tricks from these like doctors that she used to date on how to cut this guy open and rip out a bullet wall. This high speed chase is going on. Yeah. That is one of the, the funny things about Bay that he cannot, he just can't quite get past is beautiful women, but you got to comment on how hot they are. Right. Oh, yeah. So you got to have everybody like her new partner. Who's that main dude from dark web from, uh, um, Oh, Unfriended the, Dark Web. Oh, sequel. no shit. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I really like that movie a lot. Um, and he first thing he's like, so do you got a boyfriend? And it's just this whole thing. And it's very similar to the whole scene in um, Transformers 5 where it's like, again, an important dialogue scene is one kid's like, I'm in love, guys. I'm in love with her. And he's like just interrupting the film. So there's definitely, again, all the Michael Bayisms here. 
And this is Isa know. Gonzalez. Yes. Correct? Yeah. And she is amazing looking in it. She's I love the best her. EMT I've ever seen. She's and she's great in this. She's great in Baby Driver. Um, oh, that's right. I yeah, forgot. She's, she's John Hamm's. Uh, she, she, they're the partnership. I was too distracted by the ham, if you know what I mean. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I love the, I love the setup, and I love that it all takes place in the daytime. Right. You know, again, like a good '90s action film of like you know almost takes place in real time. Um, well, and I'm glad you brought up the '90s action film thing because. Uh, Bay retweets himself with his own movie. Oh, right, yeah. Because he starts quote, he has a cop. The entire incident really goes down because a cop quotes Bad Boys and quotes The Rock to his partner and is like, when is you fuck the prom queen and whine about their best winners go home and fuck the prom queen and makes him go uh, ask the bank teller out in the middle of the bank robbery without them going on. Like technically it's Bay's hubris is why this entire movie exists. But a lot of people have pointed out him citing his own movies as being like kind of the same joking way I just did. But to me, it feels like Bay putting up a, a road sign and saying, this is what we're doing. Yeah. I'm making a back. movie like the movies that I made in the 90s. And like, you're either going to be into that or you're not. And I am. Yeah. I mean, this is a tremendous film. It's such a bummer that it's getting trounced at the box office, especially by Sonic the fucking Hedgehog 2. Like it seems only not right, but just predictable yeah, that that would happen. Like you just can't believe it anymore while also totally believing it at the same time, you know? Well, it's, it's fucking rated R and hard, R. hard R and not in the ironic R of like Deadpool, but like a, just a, again, a nineties action movie R I was cussing and gore and blood and you know, well, that is the one thing that we haven't ever brought up when talking about Bay, even in the two hours we've been on this podcast is that there is no irony to Bay. Like no. he's not making ironic films, even six underground, which has some jokey elements to it is 100% sincere. Yeah. Like, that's just not a mode that he operates in. Like to him, it's all about delivering real emotions, real action, and like a really great time at the movies. And like, you can just check your irony bullshit at the door. I also think that's part of the reason why a lot of people, especially younger viewers these days, like have trouble with his films is because kind of in the way that we've talked about in the past that like sincerity for a lot of people is dead. It's all about this kind of detachment and Bay is anything but detached. Yeah. You don't have, you know, a JJ Abrams. It's funny. He wrote, you know, Armageddon, but you don't have a Poe Dameron character from force awakens winking at the audience. Kind of like, yeah, I'm making fun of the situation we're in right now, you know, which is very much, which is funny because six underground is written by, recent Miller who wrote Deadpool. Right. You know, and that they, they're the Kings of that. I mean, like that kind of humor, but I'm not sure what the original script looked like, but it really feels like in that film, Bay kind of tampers that down, you know, and makes it more, you can feel their stamps mostly in the character intros because it feels like zombie land at that point. Yes. That was them too. Right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 That very comic booky, almost Scott Pilgrimish. You know, like kind of vignette thing. style of like, here's who this person is. Here's who this person is. Here's who this person is. And like, just it's the one thing I'd probably cut out. Yeah. Of six underground. <laughs> yeah. I don't like no, that. Fuck that. It's so good. Yeah. The vignette stuff like that always makes me bulk. Mm. So I would cut nothing about six underground. It's a gonzo masterpiece. <laughs> but I mean, I really don't know if there's a ton left to say about ambulance other than like Garrett Dillahunt also in it. 
unfortunately not given as much to do. If I did have one major criticism of this movie, it's the fact that like Garrett Dillahunt mostly just rides in the back of like another vehicle and is trying to figure out a way to, uh, you know, stop Jake Gyllenhaal. Also, we haven't gotten, there is plenty to say about this movie. What am I saying? Because we haven't even gotten to the Cholo Gatling gun yet, where Michael Bay's like crazy car fetish, which we haven't even touched upon in any of these movies, is brought out by them basically building a custom lowrider with a giant machine gun that unloads on a gaggle of cops at the end. It's in fucking credible. Yep, it is. And they have a dummy in the front. And it's like a, just this James Bond Gatling gun that pops up from the uh, passenger seat. And he does some really cool stuff. We were kind of talking about X a couple weeks ago with the like, you have the shot of the nail and that going, the foot coming, you know, it's going to happen. He does a lot of like, again, like Hitchcocky and stuff. You know, the bomb's going to blow up. It's only a matter of time. They, they wire up this um, one of the ambulances and you're just like, when is this going to go and how big is it going to be? And it's bigger than... <laughs> You could imagine. And the Gatling gun thing, I remember you and I, it was earlier in the film, Jake Gyllenhaal's character calls for help um, with his friends. And Poppy. With, with Poppy. And we, who's Get that guy? Topo. Yeah. That, he's, he's, a, um, he's been so, in a million. He's times. a soap opera star, yeah. too. And you see, we see them like rigging up this Gatling gun on this like this gimbal arm. And I turned to you, I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. And then it was like Chekhov's, you know, Gatling gun. And we were just waiting for that. And when it shows up, it's everything you could have wanted. I also love how like the whole thing is about keeping one cop alive. And they murder like so many fucking cops. Yeah. <laughs> just like destroy half the LAPD. It's the Saving Private Ryan <laughs> conundrum. It's like, what? How much does one cop's life cost? <laughs> But the other thing, too, here with Bay is that it's, again, another one of his uh, later stage fascinations with human connection. Mm. Um, because the entire movie, it opens, you know, with, with her, the Ezia Gonzalez's uh, EMT, saving a young girl and her being alone and detached from her mom and her even having to tell her mother, like, squeeze her hand, stay with her the entire time, and, like, giving these instructions, and then she ends up going and, like, seeking this little girl out again. Well, because she walks away and says, fuck, I don't care. Yeah. Her whole thing is, like, that's an act. Yeah. Yeah. And it's about, like, actually letting yourself, but it's the same as, as uh, Ryan Reynolds, in six underground is that he has to finally shed this idea of like, I'm alone on this mission. It doesn't, other people don't matter. You like, everybody's expendable to just being like, we're better if we as human beings like connect with one another and like, just drop the act that like, again, we, there's no need for you to distance from one another. It's all about like coming together. It almost feels like one of the ultimate like bits of post COVID messaging of like, we can only save like the human race by coming together. And it's, it's such an interesting notion from a guy who otherwise could be seen as a straight up nihilist. Yeah. Complete cynic. Yeah. In every sense of the word. Who distrusts the government wants to just see everything burn. And like, you know, the only people who are redeemable are these brawny soldiers with their machine guns. But you know what, Martin? This has been great. It I has think been. This is one of the most fun times I've had since, I don't even know, maybe the Boddicker 
uh, episode where we just consumed an entire filmography by one director, but I was excited every time I'd be like, well, it's Bay time. We're going to go insane now. <laughs> but this is the last bonus episode, too, before we start season three. Should we tease them with what we got to, yes, to kick we'll, it off? Yes, we'll tease. It's French. It's extreme. And it's quite new. Tell you, it's quite new, and we're also... Everybody's going to be uncomfortable. It's been a, we actually had to do these bonus episodes so that we had more time with these French extreme movies that we're going to cover because we were so fucking depressed watching them all in a row. I got to watch two tonight after this. So wish me luck. Wait, which two are you watching? Um, I'm going to watch high tension and then I'm going to watch frontiers. Oh, Neither one of those would could be described as uplifting. Nope. So good luck, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. But we'll see you guys next week for the official start of season three of Secret Handshake. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.